Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. I think the template of anti-Semitism on the left is very similar to the template of anti-Semitism on the right. The Jews control the banks. The Jews are the interlopers. The Jews are the gentrifiers. The Jews are controlling the media, so you can't criticize Israel. You, you can't say anything bad. The Jews control the government. They get a direct line to the White House. Hello, and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I want to start today by reading a couple sentences from a piece by Batya Ungar-Sargon in The Forward. She was writing this in the aftermath of what has become a commonplace and, for a lot of us, terrifying news story, which is about another anti-Semitic attack, this one in New York. And she writes that the bad days are back. Orthodox Jews are living through a new age of pogroms. This week, as we celebrated the Festival of Lights, there were no fewer than 10 10 anti-Semitic attacks in the New York area alone. A 65-year-old man in Manhattan punched as he assailant yelled, fuck you, Jews. A 67-year-old man and a six-year-old son attacked by a group of teenagers in Brooklyn. Three women slapped in the face by a woman who confessed it was simply because they were Jews. And last night on the seventh night of Hanukkah, a man wielding a machete the size of a broom charged into a Hanukkah celebration in a rabbi's house in the ultra-Orthodox enclave of Monsi and stabbed five people, two of them critically. There has been certainly a sense that anti-Semitism is rising, that it is having a new and renewed life in America, in other parts of the world. Um, it was a big issue in the UK elections. It's been a big issue in very scary ways, I would say, in France. And it's something I've been wanting to explore on the show. Today is actually the day it's coming out is National Holocaust Remembrance Day. So it feels like a particularly fitting day on which to do it. Uh, my guest is Deborah Lipstadt. She is the Dorot Professor of Modern Jewish History and Holocaust Studies at Emory University. She's the author of a number of books, including Denying the Holocaust and History on Trial, but most recently, Anti-Semitism Here and Now, which was published in 2019 and takes a form of dialogues between her and a student and a colleague on what anti-Semitism is, how to understand it, how to recognize it, where it comes from and what it means. These are hard issues. Um, sometimes they're scary issues. And sometimes we're tracing territory, which is fuzzy, which different people can interpret different ways, trying to understand the boundaries of a prejudice and a kind of hatred that often doesn't follow easy logic and often finds 
very sophisticated ways to disguise itself. But these are conversations that need to be had and things that need to be discussed and aired and some light shown on them. Uh, so I'm grateful to Dr. Lipstadt for joining me. I'm grateful to all of you for being here. Uh, as always, my email is at ezrakleinshow at box.com. Here is Deborah Lipstadt. Deborah Lipstadt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ezra. It's a pleasure being here. Let me start with a basic question. There is a perception that I have, that many have, that anti-Semitism is on the rise in America, on the rise globally. Is that true? I can't give you a definitive answer, which may seem strange given the amount of time I spend writing, thinking, and talking about it. But what I can tell you without doubt is that the anti-Semites feel more emboldened. They feel freer to take violent actions and all the way at the other end of the spectrum to draw a swastika on the side of a building or to knock the hat off of some of a Jewish person walking across the street. So whether there are more of them out there or just all those who've walked around for a long time with latent feelings but realized that, that it wasn't acceptable to express them now feel that they can do it. The moral guardrails, the moral banisters, which kept people from saying certain things and doing certain things, sometimes decried as political correctness, have, I think, dropped down. I, uh, I want to return to that idea of moral guardrails in a minute, but something you said there I, I think is important, which is another thing I've wondered about is if part of what we feel in all directions, what Jewish people feel who are feeling more afraid, what anti-Semites feel who are feeling more emboldened comes from a heightened ability to see anti-Semitism through social media, through virality, through national and international media, that when there is an attack in New York, I know about it very quickly in California, when I know much more about the debate over anti-Semitism in the UK Labor Party than I probably would have 30 years ago, that there is a way in which the globalization and digitization of media makes it easier to see something that perhaps was always there. Absolutely. The delivery system is entirely different. I started working on the topic of Holocaust denial, oh, I would say in the late 80s. And at that point in time, early 90s, if you wanted Holocaust denial material in most countries, certainly in Western countries, you had to get it in a plain envelope, usually to a P.O. box. Because most of those, many of those places were just cut off in Germany, other countries, from from using uh, the normal post office routes. Today, all you have to do is go to Google and put in the word. And even if you're not looking for Holocaust denial material, if you put in Anne Frank, depending how you phrase it, Anne Frank's diary, real, whatever, whatever words you put in, often third, fourth item, sometimes the second item, but usually the third or the fourth item that comes up could very well be a denial item. So the delivery system is much quicker, and I agree with you 100%. Uh, I know details about the Labor Party uh, struggle that I would never have known before. So that's one thing I think that's happened as a result of social media and the internet. And I don't want to beat up on the internet because A, it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference, and B, I use the internet all the time. But I think the other thing that's happened is the concept of lone wolf has become an anachronism. It no longer applies. 
the murderer in Pittsburgh, the murderer in Poway in San Diego, the murderer in Halle, and even the murderer in uh, Christchurch, New Zealand, all were citing the same sources, using the same uh, MO, modus operandi. Um, they, 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 may, they may never even be sitting on the same continent, much less in the same room, but they share information and share uh, details and share approaches. So that's the other thing that's happened. This emboldening, this uh, heightened prevalence of anti-Semitic information, even when you're just trying to do an innocuous search on YouTube, I wonder sometimes how much some of what we're seeing with anti-Semitism, but also other things like Islamophobia and racism and others, has to do with the decline of gatekeepers in a lot of different areas of life. Um, there's an old line, I think I heard uh, Jeffrey Goldberg say it, but but perhaps he didn't come up with it, that anti-Semitism is a light sleeper. But I, I wonder sometimes if what it really was, was reasonably well suppressed, that it was always there, but people who ran political parties, who ran media organizations, who ran um, bookstores, you know, they weren't trafficking in that kind of thing. And they didn't want the people who worked for them or led them to, to do so either. But as media, internet, and a bunch of other trends around the world and technology and globalization have weakened the ability of gatekeepers to hold control of organizations, what was always there and always had a certain intense, it's called fan base behind it, has been able to bust forward um, because it was always there, because it always had that enthusiasm. You know, we live in a world where there's um, a decrying, a diminishing, a dismissing of people with expertise. I remember back when the Brexit debate was still going on, it's now been settled, but um, when the first vote was taking place, I believe it was a BBC correspondent, was interviewing the then Minister of Education, um, a conservative who supported Brexit. And the interviewer said something to the effect, well, the experts say, and then he was going to go on, you know, that Brexit will have a disastrous effect on the UK economy, et cetera. And the Minister of Education interrupted him and said, we've had enough of experts. Well, I mean, that sort of says it all. When you start dismissing people who know things, people who are experts in things. Now, uh, I live in the world of the academy, and there are a lot of academics who think they know everything just because they're academics. So I'm not saying that, you know, every academic and every expert always gets it right. But when there's a blanket... Uh, sort of degradation of expertise, of knowledge. And that's that's embedded to a certain extent in the populism we're seeing. You also get a freedom to say what you want. And not only to say what you want, I mean, everybody has that freedom, but it, it gets more attention and you feel, as we, as we said before, emboldened to say it. But you also feel that those who take issue with you, who criticize you, who may cite facts, can be easily dismissed. Well, I wonder if it isn't even a little bit more toxic than that. I had a conversation with uh, Angela Nagel, who studies extremism online, and 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 I've talked to other scholars uh, who who study these things, and it seems to me that one of the noted pathways into these kinds of ideas is now you begin by what's called shitposting. You're just screwing around. You're trying to be edgy. You're saying things are going to offend people and get a rise out of people. I was a teenager once. It was getting increasingly long ago, but I remember those feelings. I remember acting, not in specifically that way, but I remember acting in ways to get a rise out of people. And then people come in and they try to shut you down and you start by getting very offended at the backlash to you, at the political correctness, at the suppression of your speech. And the people who seem to be welcoming you and, and, and rallying to your side 
are um, they they hold really quite toxic ideas. But as you become like the gateway is well, I'm I can say whatever I want. You can't tell me what's true. You can't tell me what to say. But then soon enough, you believe the thing that you were initially just saying provocatively. It's it, and I see it. I see it in relation to anti-Semitism. I see it in relation to racism, to hatred of Muslims. Uh, that you start out by saying this provocative thing, and then if a, somebody challenges you, you stand your ground. I've seen it in young people. I see it on the internet. I see it on comments on my own posting on uh, social media. And then you you almost feel uh, I have to defend this position, whether you believe it or not, or whether the facts are there or not. Facts become, are now, um, you know, sort of like, well, maybe we'll look at them, maybe we won't. Uh, Enough of the facts. Don't confuse me with the facts. But that's not entirely new. If you think about the etymology of the word prejudice, and to some degree we're we're sort of dancing around that topic, uh, think about the etymology of the word prejudge. I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. I see a black person. I know exactly what their characteristics are. I see a Jewish person. I see a gay person. I see a Muslim person. I know who they are. You meet the stereotype in front of your nose while the person themselves is still two blocks away. So, But now we have a better delivery system, a much better delivery system. And we have a coupling with that. It's not just the delivery system, but a certain attitude that I think is promulgated by many people, including the leader of our country or the the titular head of our country, um, that uh, taking issue with the experts, taking issue with people who know something is not only, it's much more than permissible, it's a point of honor. So I I take your point as a good corrective to where I've been in this conversation for a minute that this goes far back before the internet. So, So let's go there. What is anti-Semitism? How do you define it? You know, um, there are different ways of defining it. Many Jewish people would rely on the probably what is one of the most famous comments to ever come out of the Supreme Court, Potter Stewart. I can't define it, but but I know it when I see it. He said that in relation to pornography. But you know, you have a sense that somebody says something to you, and and you know it's anti-Semitic. But we can do we can do better than that. Isaiah Berlin, the great British philosopher, uh, used to say an anti-Semite is someone who hates Jews more than is absolutely necessary. And it sounds amusing, but there is something to it. If I hate you because I hate you, that's that's one thing. But if I hate you one iota more because you're a Jew, that's anti-Semitism. But we can do even do better than that. And I would say that anti-Semitism, first of all, has a structure and has a template, as do most stereotypes and most prejudicial stereotypes. And I would say it has three or four elements, something to do with money, finance, some something relation to that, A. B, something to do with intellect, but not positive, not affirmative, intellect used maliciously, intellect used nefariously. And three, power above your weight in society and the ability to get things done that would outweigh what one would think you should be able to do given your numbers in society. And that all ties together into a conspiratorial notion of the Jew wanting to do evil, to use their their financial ability, to use their cunning, to use their power in a way against uh, the non-Jew. And if you contrast it to a degree, and sometimes this contrast helps people see the difference, let's say with racism, another pernicious prejudice, 
the racist looks upon the person of color as lesser than. They're not not as smart as, they're not as capable as. You know, even the the terrible thing in the South that a a grown African-American man would be called boy um, and, and treated with, you know, ultimate disrespect. Uh, so the racist is punching down. The racist is looking at the person of color and says, if that person moves into my neighborhood, there goes the neighborhood. If that person's kid goes to my, to our, and I'm putting that in quotation marks, air quotes, to our kid's school, that'll ruin the school. The racist punches down. The anti-Semite, who's often the, the same person as the racist, punches up. They look at this Jew more powerful, more cunning, richer, and that person is to not just be loathed, but to be feared. That person has the ability to do me harm, to do me damage, to do me wrong. So it's a conspiracy. It, it adds the, to the element of the stereotype. It adds a sense of a conspiracy theory. So that's one one way of, I think, uh, uh, looking at it or trying to get at the definition. It's a striking form of prejudice because, as you say in there, it takes an account that maybe in other contexts one would consider positive of uh, as attributes and and warps it into to malice. I was thinking as you said that that if you said to me, "Well, what are your stereotypes? What do you think about people who went to Harvard?" I'd say, "Well, smart, uh, disproportionate to them number of them going to Wall Street or management consulting, so some sort of uh, form of finance, and they wield a lot of power, and you know that maybe a little bit." good or bad on net, depending on how you feel about uh, American elite institutions. But I think most people understand that that makes Harvard selective. It, it It's part of Harvard's cachet. But for Jews in, in, in different places, across different times, across different countries, across different continents, it's turned into this conspiracy theory of, of malice and evil. What are its roots? How did that happen? Because it is, as you say, it's a slightly unusual and the triple backflip form of fury. Before I go to the roots, I want to just build on what you just said. Uh, there's a, a, I'm speaking to you from D.C. There's a journalist here in D.C., Franklin Foyer, I'm sure you know him, at The Atlantic, who says a philo-Semite, someone who likes Jews, is generally an anti-Semite who likes Jews, you know? Um, you hear people say, oh, I like Jews because they're rich, they're powerful, they're uh, cunning, they'll get, some, they'll get the job done. Donald Trump has dimensions of this. That's right, exactly. So you like them for, for the stereotypical reasons and you think you're paying them a compliment. What are the roots? The root, you know, anti-Semitism is often called the longest or the oldest hatred. And it's called that for very good reason. I find the roots of anti-Semitism in the New Testament and the New Testament depiction of the crucifixion of Jesus. Think back on the story, and I apologize to anybody who knows their their New Testament well. I'm going to sort of take together different stories and, and treat them as one or different versions and treat them as one. But uh, this, the way it's told is that the Jews killed Jesus. Now, of course, Jesus was a Jew. The Jews, everybody in the story is Jewish except the Romans who actually kill him. But that's a fact. And remember, we're setting facts aside. The Jews killed Jesus. Why? Because he wanted to change, to chase the money changers out of the temple. So there you've got your finance. Now, what did they do? They went to the Romans to, add, to say crucify him, and the Romans didn't want to do it. But then the Jews pushed and managed to convince Rome, you know, crucify him, crucify him, convince Rome, the greatest power in the universe at the time, that this is something that had to be done. 
and they went ahead and did it. There you have the template. Now, it didn't, that didn't have to turn into an anti-Semitic template. But over the uh, millennia, the Middle Ages, early, late, uh, you know, um, middle and middle Middle Ages, uh, it was used by church leaders, mainly church fathers, but not only, in a way not just to differentiate uh, Judaism from Christianity, Judaism as being the mother religion, but now anachronistic because Jesus had come to show you a new path, but to demonize the Jew. So that you had you have medieval woodcuts of uh, Jews taking a, a child and stabbing it, and the blood spurting forth, sort of a reenactment of the crucifixion for preparation of the matzah, the bread, the uh, the cracker, whatever used the unleavened bread used at Passover. Uh, again, a, re a reenactment of the crucifixion, or you have uh, uh, etchings of Jews stabbing the host the wafer that is part of the sacrament, that is part of the mass and becomes the body of Christ. And again, reenacting the deicide. Um, you had a demonization of the Jew. Uh, the Jew becomes the devil. And in Christian theology, the devil has certain characteristics, and two of them are particularly important here. One, the devil is the only one who can harm God, and the Jews have already done that. So if they can harm God, how much more so they ipso facto they can harm me and harm the general population. And B, the devil comes in or the demon comes in disguise. And you never know that he's been here until he's done his handiwork and he's gone. And so that, again, you have to always be on the lookout for the Jew because the Jew will come and do something and you won't know that you've been harmed till after they've come and, and gone. But I don't want to limit it to the church. That's where, that's where it has its roots. But it migrates. It has legs. Legs, unlike, I think, any other prejudice, it migrates Voltaire in the 17th century. Voltaire, no fan of the church, no fan of the power of the church. But when he writes about Jews, you could think he was he was the most uh, anti-Semitic uh, church father of the you know middle of the 13th, 14th, 15th century, or go outside the church, go to Karl Marx, who hated all religions and was contemptuous of all religions. When he writes about Jews, again, it could it sounds exactly the same. You go to the eugenicists of this 19th century into the 20th century in the Nazi party, the, the National Socialists, the Third Reich, and it's the same kind of thing. So that template moves to different areas, to different places, to different outlooks. And one of the interesting things, and, and sad, I mean, it makes it very difficult to fight, um, is that you you get attacks, you have anti-Semitism from the right, political right, and you have anti-Semitism from the political left. And what's interesting uh, is that they both use the same template, money, power, intellect, cunning, etc. So uh, that in a, in, a, in a couple of minutes is, is the historical roots of it. And, and it makes it very hard to fight, very hard to wipe out. All the people say, here's how you solve the problem. I usually, you know, stop listening after that sentence because there are ways of addressing the problem, but wiping it out is going to be very hard, very difficult, if at all possible. I want to address this question very head on. Um, I think I have heard people say the prevalence of this kind 
this templatized anti-Semitism in so many cultures at so many times, in so many places, in so many contexts, doesn't that prove there is something to it? Isn't it true there are a lot of Jews in finance or in the media? Isn't it true uh, that they have power? That if it keeps coming up, isn't that a, a reason to believe that it's more than just a story told in the New Testament that somehow became a metaphor that became viral, that the New Testament is responding to the same thing all these places are, which is some kind of truth about the threat Jews pose to societies? You know, the saying, with this smoke, there's fire, is essentially what you're saying. Peter Gay, who was a professor of history at Yale and uh, actually a, uh, who, who left Germany as a refugee as a, as a young boy, used to say, where there's smoke, there's smoke makers. You know? So um, I, I'm not so sure that that's correct. If you think about, let's take rape. Rape has been around for a very long time. So if rape has been around for a long time, can we say that women must be doing something to cause men to want to rape them? Now, of course, that's that's ludicrous, but but it's the same it's the same analogy. Or racism has been around, you know, and if 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 only those people of color would X, Y, and Z, uh, then it would go away. But I don't think that's correct. Now it is true that uh, Jews, uh, there's always been a strong emphasis in in Jewish communities, Jewish education, on education, on learning, and on asking questions, and on being intellectually combative. That's true. And that often translates into public roles, into academic roles, into uh, media roles, etc., but you know, you, you want all those people point out all oh, the Jew controls this this bank and that bank. We could go through a much longer list of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who control banks, or white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who control uh, media companies. You know, you you do a selective kind of looking, and then you'll find evidence to prove your point. One of the strange things as I've read the history of this is that oftentimes. Jews were forced into financial professions because other religions had certain prohibitions on that kind of work or because Jews were actually kept out of other kinds of work more directly. And so it's been this weird, not as much currently, but historically, this weird dimension where Jews are pushed into particular forms of work and then attacked, slandered, um, conspiracy theorized about for uh the role that they were asked to play by a society, particularly when that society then becomes, um, you know, there's an economic downturn and needs a scapegoat. Exactly. Going back to Europe, in Europe of the uh, fourth, fifth century, um, slowly, especially after Christianity becomes the uh, accepted religion of the Roman Empire, um, Jews are pushed to the edges of the society, in part because you want Christianity to be dominant. You want to show that uh, Judaism, the, which is the source for Christianity, is anachronistic. These Jews are not only failed to see uh, the wisdom and the light that, that Jesus has brought to the world, but they're blinded. In fact, if you go to Notre Dame, I, guess, I don't know if you can see it anymore now that Notre Dame is you know, after the terrible fire— but outside the um, cathedral was a statue of synagoga, 
uh, with her eyes blinded and, you know, hair messed up and holding a serpent. In other words, she is blind. The synagogue, the Jew is blind, standing next to a uh, statue of a woman who was supposed to represent the church and Christianity, a beautifully uh, dressed, beautifully coiffed and eyes wide open. So you you begin to push the Jew uh, out and you say, not only is the Jew not the not our uh, co-religionist anymore or just a different approach to religion but the jew is is evil the jew is blind and one of the other things that went along with it is you begin to make rules and regulations which exactly as you put it push the jew to the fringes of society so that ultimately the jew cannot own land when you get to the time of the guilds in the Middle Ages, whether it was the Shoemakers Guild, the Ironworkers Guilds, etc., those guilds were built around a religious identity. So in order to be part of the guild, you had to be part of the church, the, the church of the ironmakers, the church of the shoemakers, whatever it might be, the leather workers. So Jews are pushed to fringe places. And uh, sometimes it's money lending, but not not all the banking houses were Jewish banking houses. I think back on Italy, medieval Italy, uh, the greatest banking houses were run by by Christians. For the Jews, uh, what was left were the um, riskier loans, the the edgier loans, however you want to put it. So uh, they are pushed to fringes of society, and then they're held uh, they're held accountable. For, oh, they, they don't like to work the land. They don't like to work with their hands. They don't like to be agrarians. And, you know, working the land was seen as the essence of, of um, being a whole person, being a good person, being an accomplished person, even if you had serfs working the land for you. And they don't like to do that. Well, they, it wasn't that they don't like to do it. The, the Hebrew Scriptures is full of laws about agriculture and, and discussion of agriculture, as is the rabbinic literature. But they were forced out of it. So uh, you force people out of it, uh, just like again in this country, you put people of color in lousy schools, and then you say they're not as good as they're not as smart as as the white kids. Well, they they maybe they would be if they had better schools and better textbooks and better teachers. This is my own theorizing here, but 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 to go back to the way you read the New Testament story, which I've I mean is true, and I've I've always found convincing. One of the things that's interesting about that, just from an economic history perspective, and you see this with uh, the way Islam also treats debt, uh, is that modern economies and much of just modernity in general has been built on a foundation of credit, debt, and finance. I mean, you can tell the story of our of the Industrial Revolution, of the Digital Revolution, of any economic upheaval we have had, and almost any economic advancement we've had, not just in terms of technological innovation, but in terms of the financing innovations that made those technologies possible and spread them around. And yet there's been this very deep alienation in society from the nature of its economies. Um, there's a, a deep skepticism in the two largest religions in the world of debt, as you say, like that crucial story of Jesus throwing the moneylenders out of the temple. It's not just about the temple, it's also about money lending. And so there's been this way in which we've consistently had this nostalgic back to the land veneration of the, the, the honest, simple farmer, this mistrust, this alienation, this uh, skepticism of, of, of bankers, of debtors, of credit as a, as a general force in society. And in a, a strange way, Jews, it seems to me, have often been the scapegoat upon which that discomfort is projected. As you say, the, the 
a lot of the Christian houses had the biggest banks. But when people wanted to turn on debt, they really didn't like what it was creating for them or what it was doing to them. Jews were the safe place to funnel that fury. That's exactly right. Look, uh, we all may hate the banks. We're happy to demonize the bank until you want to buy that first little apartment, that first little condo, that first little house, a starter house, whatever it might be. And then you go to the bank and you just pray they're going to accept your application and loan you the money. And you're going to be pay, you'll pay off your mortgage and then you'll go on and grow and, and advance and maybe buy a bigger one or whatever it is. So the demonization of the instruments of finance is very disturbing. And I, sometimes you hear that now in, in political circles. I get very nervous when there's a demonization of an entire class and a demonization of entire group wealth, et, et cetera. Now, I don't think the wealthy should control the earth, and I don't think the wealthy should control our politics, et cetera. But when you begin to demonize them, uh, it makes me very nervous for exactly this reason. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for the gray area comes from Burrow. Getting the right furniture for your place can be really annoying. At this point in my life, I've probably gone through maybe three sets of outdoor deck furniture, and it's a pain in the ass for a different reason every single time. It doesn't look like it did in the pictures, the assembly isn't what they said it was, or it's just not as advertised for whatever reason. Thankfully, Burrow is the furniture company that wants to make it all a little easier. Last year, Burrow introduced their outdoor line, and this spring they're adding to it with their Dunes line, offering new seating, dining, and lounger options designed for luxury, comfort, and durability. Burrow furniture is easy to put together and take apart, so you can move or store it as needed. And it ships straight to your door for free. Gray Area listeners can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash box. That's burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash box for 15% off. Borough.com slash box. An argument you make in the book is that there are left-wing and right-wing versions of anti-Semitism, and each side is often blind to the manifestation on its own side. So I'd like to talk a bit about that. What what, what are the left and right-wing versions, and how do they differ, um, at least in the modern world? Right. Well, today I would say, uh, look, you have anti-Semitism on the left and on the right. And one of the problems is, and I'll, I'll get to your question about how they differ in a minute, is that people on the right, the political right, are very adept at seeing it on the political left. And people on the political left are very adept at seeing it on the political right. And they're both correct. They're both seeing what's there. But they don't see it it's next to them. They have a blinder on, on one eye and they only see it across the transom. The way I would contrast the two is that on the far right, 
talking about people like the murderer in Pittsburgh at Tree of Life Synagogue, or the murderer in San Diego at the Chabad Synagogue, or the murderer in Halle, Germany, who, who on Yom Kippur 2019 tried to get into the synagogue, and but for a reinforced door was prevented from massacring the people there, though he did murder two people outside the synagogue, non-Jews. For them, they look upon the Jew and they see not a white person. They see mud people. They see certainly not whites, certainly not white Christians. And they look upon them and they see them as engaged in a conspiracy. Again, going back to what I said earlier about a conspiracy theory being at the heart of anti-Semitism, engaged in a conspiracy to destroy white Christian culture. So that um, what they will argue, and we heard this in Charlottesville in, in August, what was it, 2017, when the marchers marched there and chanted, Jews will not replace us. They would argue that there is a plan afoot to destroy, weak, weaken, and then eventually destroy and displace white Christian culture, uh, white Christian leadership, white Christian society with black people, with brown people, with Muslims. And that you already see this happening in, throughout Europe with the influx of refugees, and you see it in this country with what are they the, to use the term of the from the far right the swarms or the hordes of people coming from south of the border. But says the person who makes this argument, those people again in air quotes, those people they're not smart enough, they're not talented enough to be doing this on their own. Someone has to be orchestrating this. Who is orchestrating this? The Jew. So when you hear people saying, oh, it's all George Soros, you know, George Soros has become, as a sociologist, David Hirsch in the in the in London likes to say, the Rothschild of the 21st century. When they say, oh, it's George Soros funding the the swarms of people coming from the South, or this is all George Soros, you know, funding the refugees to come and the immigrants to come, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's what they were chanting. Jews will not replace us. It's not the Jew is working to replace, to destroy white society. When the murder in, in, in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life Synagogue was being brought down by the SWAT officers who had gone in there, one of the officers was communicating back to the headquarters, uh, police headquarters, and he said, he's yelling, you will not destroy, you, the people in the synagogue, will not destroy the white race. So the Jew was seen as an enemy of white culture, white society, white Christianity, all those fine things, those valued things, uh, they're against all that. So this is sort of, we, we've talked about the template of the Jew is, you know, in, in, in finance and, and power, but this is another piece you sometimes hear of like rootless cosmopolitan. The Jew is an enemy That's of right. ethno-nationalism. The Jew is somebody who is orchestrating an attack on the borders, somebody who doesn't um, respect that there's a national culture that needs to be preserved, that it's this kind of the Jew as somebody who is not truly of the nation and does not um, share in that purity and in fact is is, is interested in toppling it. Like that's the, the set of um, stereotypes that is well associated with this variant, yeah? Exactly, precisely. The Jew as more loyal to the Jew in another country than to the people in their own country. The Jew as not really patriotic. The Jew as someone who can't really be trusted. Uh, there was a book that was published, I think, 1896 or 98 by a man named Simon Wolf. 
And I remember first discovering it when I was a graduate, my first year of graduate school. And it was something like the the Jew in the Confeder in the Re Revolutionary War, the Confederacy, and maybe the Spanish-American War, whatever it was. And I thought, oh, this would be interesting. I opened it up and I look at it, and it's just a list of names of Jews who served in the armed forces and, and fought in these wars. And it was published as a response to the charge, oh, Jews really didn't fight. Jews were not really, you know, they were slackers. They took it, they took it easy. They let others fight, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the Jews have always been very sensitive to this. And that is exactly part of it. That you you can't trust the Jew. The Jew is more, more loyal to a Jew in another country than to um, their fellow citizens. So that's what you get from the right. And its worst manifestation is on the far right. But it trickles, you know, it, it permeates. It doesn't just stay there. It permeates more to uh, center right. On the left, you have something similar but different. On the left, the left, the person on the progressive left, and not everyone on the progressive left, just like it's not everyone on the right, of course not, but this is where you have the source of anti-Semitism. And you saw this in the UK Labour Party, and you still see it in the UK Labour Party, with Corbyn and those around him as acolytes. Their view of prejudice and power in a society is refracted through a prism. You remember prisms uh, shape light, as you well know. And that prism has a number of facets. One facet is ethnicity. One facet is financial status and uh, or economic status. And the third facet, which is dependent on the first two, is power. So they look upon the Jew and they say, here's a white person, or a person can choose to be to pass as white, even though the statistics I've heard that 10 to 12, if you've heard even as high as 15% of the American Jewish community are people of color. And uh, in Israel, certainly the Jewish population of Israel, I think over half are people of color, but that doesn't matter. The person on the progressive left who adheres to this, the Jew is a white person is a rich person, even though, again, as we know, not all Jews are wealthy or even financially secure. In fact, the irony is that many of the Jews now are the direct um, victims of anti-Semitism. Jews in parts of Brooklyn, the ultra-Orthodox, are very poor. But the Jew is white, says this person on this anti-Semite coming from the progressive left. The Jew is pa financially powerful. Ipso facto, they have power. And if you have power... There's no way that you can be um, a victim of prejudice because prejudice is a, only directed at people without power. And then there's an added element coming from, again, the progressive left. And you saw this certainly with Corbyn. Corbyn used to do this all the time, still does it, even though he's not head of the Labor Party. He would always talk about the fact that his mother demonstrated at Cable Street. Cable Street was the site of the demonstrations in London uh, in the 30s against the far right, the fascist right. So what he was saying by that is, you know, I call it the Miss Piggy defense. Moi? Me? Uh, how could I possibly be accused of being an anti-Semite? I come to my hatred of prejudice with, I imbibe it with my, my mother's milk. You know, my mother was there in, in, at that stage, and I have never, in a, for a, I don't have a racist bone. I don't have, I could not be a prejudicial person as all, at all. So if you, the Jew, can't, structurally, it's impossible for you to be a victim because you're white and you're wealthy and you're powerful. And me, the progressive person on the progressive left, 
um, could not possibly be a purveyor of prejudice because I'm so deeply imbued with this hatred of all forms of discrimination. You must your charges of anti-Semitism, particularly when they're directed to the left, are illegitimate, unacceptable, and must have an ulterior motive, either to de defend Israel, even if Israel has nothing to do with the conversation, to defend Israel or to bring us down, to attack us as a party, to attack us as a, a left orientation of politics or something like that. So not only are you not a victim, but you are engaged in this conspiracy, here's that word again, conspiracy, to do our cause harm, to bring us down, and you are a danger to us, and you're hiding behind this, this claim of victimhood. And, and the, the, the other added element, again, on, on the left is when, and we saw, uh, we saw this in the Labor Party, but we see this on the American campus in certain areas. We see this in, in other areas as well, but in the Labor Party was most clearly um, articulated and defined. Um, we'll decide what is anti-Semitism. You claim it's anti-Semitism, we'll see if we decide if it's anti-Semitism. Now, for a person on the left, when they are confronted with a minority who's been subjected to discrimination, whether it's because of their color or their uh, sexual orientation or uh, their religion, whatever it might be, and the person comes and claims, I'm a victim of discrimination, the reflexive action is to say, I believe you, I accept it. Now, you may investigate and you may find out the person was fired because they were a lousy worker and they never showed up and it wasn't a matter of uh, racism or homophobia or whatever it might be. But by and large, the default position is to accept their, their claim. Not so when you're dealing with Jews and those on, but, on the let, left. Let me interject here for a second because I, I feel like what you've described here is a form of anti-Semitism on the right and a defense against claims of anti-Semitism on the left. But what is the, the nature of just anti-Semitism itself on the left? Not what do people say when accused, but what is the, the core thing that would lead to the accusation in the first place? Okay, well, I, let me before I get to that, let me just say that I think it's not just the defense against charges of anti-Semitism, but when you begin to say you're making this up, you're claiming that you're a victim and you're not, uh, then you're. It's not just the defense against anti-Semitism; it's a it's a turning it around, an accusation. I think the template of anti-Semitism on the left is very similar to the template of anti-Semitism on the right. The Jews control the banks. The Jews are the interlopers. The Jews are the gentrifiers. Uh, the Jews are um, uh, controlling the media, so you can't criticize Israel. You, you can't say anything bad. Uh, the Jews control the government. Look, they're, 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 uh, they get a direct uh, ear to the a direct line to the White House. It's the same thing. It's that power. And in a way, we're trying to analyze something that makes no sense. For the person on the, again, the progressive left who, who engages in this, and I, again, I'm not saying everyone on either side does, the Jew is the capitalist. And with that, all the, the bad and dangers of capitalists. And if the Jew is the least bit of a supporter of Israel, and even if they're not, uh, they're a Zionist and the Zionists are racist. 
So there is that attack on the Jew. And again, they use their power, they use their money to harm those on the left. They use their money, they use their power to harm other minorities. So it's very similar. The template is similar. It's just, you know, uh, the the person on the left sees the Jew as the capitalist. The person on the right sees the Jew as the, the communist. Last time I checked, you can't be a capitalist and a communist at the same time. So something that I see as I follow this discussion, I feel like this is true in your book, too, is that when you hear the discussion, debate, concern about anti-Semitism on the right, what people are talking about is, functionally at least in America, the alt-right. The thing that, that gets a lot of attention is a form of white supremacy aimed um, at, among others, at Jews. Um, this whole you will not replace us dimension, uh, concerns about birth rates, borders, that kind of thing. When I hear the concerns about it on the left, it tends to be much more that there is a form of anti-Zionism that converges into anti-Semitism, which is a, a trickier argument because on the one hand, you have to be able to debate policies of a country like Israel. And on the other hand, certainly it can be the case that criticisms of Israel can contain an, an, an anti-Semitic component. So could you talk a bit about that? Because I, I think in that way, what I hear the most concern about and, and what I see mentioned most in your book is not the left-wing critique of the Jew, the left-wing um, slander of the Jew as capitalist, but the things like the um, the, the BDS movement uh, and and other forms of anti-Zionism that trend into anti-Semitism or can trend into anti-Semitism. It's tricky, and yet it's pretty simple. Criticism of Israeli policies, however severe, is not ipso facto anti-Semitism. People are critical of American policies. It's not anti-Americanism. So we're not talking about criticism of policy. But when that criticism of policy and that policy is explained as, well, Jews are like that, or the stereotypical, anti-Semitic stereotypical characteristics of the Jew are used to explain it, then you're moving from criticism of policy to an explanation of the policy that's rooted in an anti-Semitism. So I think that that's part of it. The other thing I think that happens is when there is what I what I describe as a myopic view of Israel's role. In other words, um, I'm I'm one of those who's very critical of many of Israeli Israel's policies. But when a person sees as a, the Israel alone being responsible for all that is wrong, Israel alone being responsible for this problem, when there may be more responsibility on one side or the other, but it certainly is not Israel alone. Or when there is a myopic view of only uh, the only human rights problem uh, worth addressing, the only human rights problem uh, that should be addressed or that we're going to pay attention to is uh, the issue of the Palestinians. Look, I wouldn't want to be a Palestinian living in Israel, Israeli-occupied, uh, Israeli-controlled, whatever term you want to use, Judea, Samaria, West Bank, Green Line, I don't care what you use. I would not want to be a, a Palestinian living there. It's not an easy life. It's not. A, it's not a. It, it, some people are thriving, but many people are not, and there are many difficulties associated with it. But having said that, when a person only sees this problem, and again, I'm not suggesting that you know people are concerned about some people only 
focus all their energies on breast cancer. And it doesn't mean that they think diabetes is not important or Alzheimer's is not important. You can only focus on one thing at a time. Um, and you can give your energies. Otherwise, you're just, you know, flopping all over the place and trying to do too much. Having said that, when I meet someone whose only focus is is this issue, I'll give you an example. It happened to me not long ago. I was at a uh, a lecture, and after the lecture, people were standing around. I think it was a small reception, and it had to do with the Middle East. And there was someone there who was clearly a, a very severe critic of Israel. And he and I got to talking. He, he didn't know who I was. I don't know. Maybe he would have been happy to talk to me had he known. And he said to me that Israel was born in sin and therefore doesn't have a right to exist. And I said to him, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, they, they chased out the, the Palestinians, the Palestinian Arabs in, in 48. Now, that's already historically questionable. Many of the Palestinians who left in, in 47, late 47, early, early 48, and during the War of Independence, or the Nakba, as the Palestinians call it, many left because they were urged to do so by radio coming from uh, Jordan, coming from Egypt, by imams. But I have to acknowledge there were Palestinian Arabs who were pushed out by Israeli fighting forces in certain places. There's no question of that. So the minute I acknowledge, I said, well, you see that there's this sin in its founding, and, and that that makes it questionable whether it has a right to exist. And I said, he just left the door wide open. And I said, let's, let's contextualize this historically. What other countries have sins in their founding history? And let's start with the United States of America and slavery and our treatment of the Native Americans and, and not just slavery, but the years, the century, over century of discrimination, neo-slavery that followed. Or let's look at Australia and the treatment of the Aborigines or New Zealand and the treatment of the Maoris or um, Canada and the treatment of the First Nation or the British Empire. Now, I'm not suggesting, heaven forfend, I'm not suggesting everybody does it, that makes it all right. Absolutely not. But what I am saying is that when you only question one country and that issue, and you, you give everyone else a pass and you don't look at it those other places, I have to ask, where is this singular-minded focus coming from? Is there a certain double standard going on here? So when you you mix the character the the explanations for a policy you might oppose vis-a-vis -vis Israel by using anti-Semitic stereotypes, and you you use this double standard that I just described, then I, I'm left questioning: uh, Is this hostility? It may be hostility to Israel, but is it using um, anti-Semitic an anti-Semitic template or? Is it the anti-Semite who knows, well, I, I can't simply talk about my views towards Jews, but if I, I, can, I can take all those things and put them on Israel, and then, it, then I can talk about it. This is one of these places where, for, for me, the conversation is very difficult. So I'm Jewish, and I've been to Israel a number of times, and I care about Israel. And I'm very, I'm appalled by the way um, Israel treats Palestinians under occupation. And one of the things that's tricky for me is that I think more and talk more about Israel because I do have a connection to it in the same way that I talk much more about America than I talk about Israel. And so when somebody says to me, well, the Chinese are interning the uh, detaining, um, putting in detention camps, a million Uyghurs, I think that is terrible. 
But there's a reason I, I think less about it than I do about things that are happening um, you know, in California that just has to do with a, a, a localism. And on the other hand, I am sensitive to the critique you make. That's not obviously true for everybody. And there is a centrality to the way people think about Israel as somehow a unique purveyor of human rights abuses, where it sometimes feels you get caught in this weird conversation between people who want to absolve of any human rights abuses, which is simply not true, and people who want to portray it as the only abuser of human rights worthy of consideration, um, which is also not true. And then, because you're talking about something that is a country, the way it then gets turned into a discussion of anti-Semitism, it's very hard to find your way out of it. Um, and it's very hard also, you know, it requires a lot of trying to parse people's motivations in a way that is very difficult. And that um, on the one hand, it's important to me as a Jew that there is a movement for justice in Israel, right? That like I affirm Israel uh, in part because it represents or has in the past represented values I care about beyond simply protection of Jewish people. And on the other hand, um, the idea that anti-Zionism is a fertile ground in which anti-Semitism hides. You tell the story in your book of a student at Stanford running for office and having to take down student office and having to take down sort of Jewish content and Israeli content on her Facebook page just because there's so much anger on those issues at Stanford when, as you say, there are a lot of other countries with a lot to answer for. Like that is creating an ecosystem that is whatever the underlying motivation uh, that is an anti-Semitic space for Jews to have to traverse in the world. It feels it's a very tough um, it, it, I find it a very tough conversation to to find my way through. It's a very difficult conversation. Now, if you notice, in my examples, I didn't say China, and I didn't say Myanmar, and I didn't talk about Syria, because those are not countries that I think Israel wants to be compared to, or that we would hold up as beacons of democracy and freedom and human rights. But I talked about Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United Kingdom, um, countries where we're more likely to look to uh, as as ex exemplars or maybe not exemplars, that may be putting it too strongly, but at least places that are committed to human rights. Um, so I, I agree with you. When people say to me, well, don't criticize Israel. Look what China's doing. And I say, look, Israel doesn't want to be, most Israelis I know don't want to be compared to the Chinese when it comes to human rights. Um, so it is a very tricky conversation. And it's a very tricky conversation because you also find Jews or supporters of Israel who will dismiss criticism as saying, oh, that's anti-Semitic, you know? And I'm very careful about that because when I use the charge and I say someone is an anti-Semite or is engaging, rarely do I say someone is an anti-Semite because I don't know what's in their heart. I know people who engage in anti-Semitism as a instrumental, you know, they use it as a what I call a, a cooking spoon. They they stir up the pot, you know. But when I use that term, when I say that's anti-Semitism, I want it to have a sting uh, that it wouldn't otherwise have. And if you use it all the time, if you're continuously charging or every time you don't like something, you're charging it as being anti-Semitic, I think uh, you really lessen the charge. Having said that, um, it is a very difficult conversation because you're dealing with a country uh, created by a people 
who are very well aware of their having been subjected to terrible treatment. It looked at, and, and Monday on the, um, of next week, uh, on January 27th, it's the 75th anniversary of the Soviets arriving at Auschwitz. Auschwitz, the biggest blood field, killing field in the world, a million, uh, close to a million Jews killed there, murdered there. And it's a tough conversation. And it's a difficult thing. And um, many Jews do, and I think correctly so, and many Israelis certainly believe their country should be held to a higher standard. But sometimes that can go a little, oh, I don't know, to an extreme. And when you ignore any wrongs being done on the other side. But it's very, very difficult. And even the idea that someone who doesn't believe in the existence of the state of Israel is ipso facto an anti-Semite is problematic. Uh, two weeks ago, I, I flew up to New York to take part in the uh, rally against the no-hate uh, rally against anti-Semitism. And I want to, I wanted to be there. I wanted to see it. I wanted to be there. I wanted to, uh, you know, uh, having uh, studied uh, Rabbi Abraham, the writings of Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who, when he marched in Selma, said he was praying with his feet. I wanted to go pray with my feet. But as we were marching, both at the beginning of the march before we crossed the, the Brooklyn Bridge and when we got to the other side, there were Nature Karta. Uh, extremist Satmer Hasidim, you know, very, very far to the to the religious right, who don't believe in the existence of the state of Israel. They believe that when God brings the Messiah, the Messiah will engineer the ingathering of all the Jewish exiles and in, back into the land of Israel, and then there will be a Jewish state. Uh, so they are firmly opposed to the existence of a state of Israel, though there are Satmar Hasidim in Israel who very happily live off the welfare of the land, but that's for another conversation. So I was marching with someone. I said, do you think that the someone who opposes the existence of the state of Israel is an anti-Semite? And this person said to me, just an, a random person, said, yes. I said, okay. And I pointed at, the Satmar, at these Nature Karta, and I said, so what do you do with them? And they said, well, you know, not, I said, you can't pick and choose, either, either yes or no. So it's a, it's a conversation that's fraught with uh, difficulty um, and fraught with politics. Uh, but I think there are certain, um, should we say, red flags or certain points where you can say, hey, wait a minute, that's, that's anti-Semitism. I want to draw two things in this conversation, and, and I want to start with actually Jeremy Corbyn, because I think he connects some things we've been talking about in a useful way. Like many people who vaguely followed the UK election from the US, I had heard the allegations that Corbyn was either anti-Semitic or much more directly uh, in a, inappropriately accepting of anti-Semitism. Um, and I didn't quite, I had read a little bit on it, but I didn't quite know the, the the scope of the allegations. You have a very good discussion of this in your book. You, I think, really show the number of things he has been at that somebody who is more tuned to this or more concerned about it would not have signed on to or would not have let pass without comment. And I think what you see in there is that whatever Corbyn is himself, and I don't pretend to have a view on it really, he is somebody who I think very clearly is emotionally very connected to the Palestinian cause. And we are all a little bit more accepting of crazy things that our allies say and our friends say than that the people we do not see as on our side say. And what I saw in your discussion of 
the list of allegations of things that Corbyn has let pass or participated in or hosted was somebody who had let his concern about the situation in Palestine blind him or become fertile ground where he was simply less concerned about the times when allies on that issue veered into anti-Semitism because he didn't see that as a central issue. Palestine was a central issue. And if you were an ally on that, then you were an ally and you were worthy of defense. And that seems to me to be one of the dangerous spaces here that because I think it is appropriate to have a real concern with the situation um, the Palestinians are in, uh, but that doesn't that doesn't give you a free pass to either be or to um, promote or work with uh, pretty direct anti-Semites trafficking in, in noxious stereotypes and conspiracies. I agree 100%. Um, I think it was Professor Alan Johnson who t teaches in um, the UK and who's a, a, written a lot about labor anti-Semitism, uh, who said that Jeremy Corbyn may not be an anti-Semite, but he's never met an anti-Semite he couldn't find room to embrace. And the same thing with Holocaust. It's not just anti-Semites. It's Holocaust deniers, terrorists. You know, he... It's sort of a, a reflexive, talking about reflexes, it's a reflexive opposition to anything that might be uh, considered establishment, you know? But in terms of, of anti-Semitism, his connection, his acceptance, his unwillingness to hold some of uh, Hamas, Hezbollah, and others to account for terrorism, for murder, for his willing to excuse it, his willing to explain it away, his going to the um, memorial site of murderers, the terrorists of the 1972 Munich Olympics. All those things, it's not one, it's not two, but when you put it together, you begin to get a picture, a portrait that is quite striking. Or as I, the story I describe in the book, and by the way, the chapter on Corbin was, uh, is one of the things that almost kept the book from coming out on time because every time I turned around, there was another incident, another expose, another example of something he had done right on the spot. There was a mural in a community in London done by an artist, a Los Angeles-based artist, Mere One, and it showed a group of fat cats with, uh, if not fat cats, but, you know, uh, wealthy uh, men sort of bursting out of their vests, smoking cigars with overtly anti-Semitic features, hooked noses, um, looking sort of disgusting. They, they, these were illustrations that could have come out of Der Sturmer, the anti-Semitic, main anti-Semitic uh, publication of the Nazi party. And they were playing Monopoly, uh, world control of finance. They were playing Monopoly and the Monopoly board was held up on the backs of uh, people of color, workers, looked like enslaved people, bent down holding up this um, Monopoly board. So when there was even the city council, which had uh, commissioned this, or the area council, which had commissioned this mural, uh, the Muslim leader of the, of the council thought this was anti-Semitic. So when Jeremy Corbyn was initially asked about it, he said, no, 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 freedom of speech, freedom of speech. Um, and we, we have to allow murals even if we don't agree with them and there's nothing wrong with it, et cetera. Then when he was head of the party and it came up again, he said, oh, I, I never looked at it closely. Now I look at it closely, I see, yes, it is anti-Semitic. So if we're going to believe him, 
and that he hadn't looked at it closely. Why was his default, again, that word reflexive reaction to dismiss these claims? They couldn't be legitimate. This is just the the Jews, again, trying to control freedom of expression, freedom of artistic expression. And you have that over and over again. Uh, talking, he went, talking once, giving a speech about someone asked a question and he didn't like the question. Oh, you Zionists have no sense of humor, no sense of irony. I mean, that's that's the that's a, a a laugh because who who introduced irony to the world if not the Jewish stand-up comedian or the Jewish comic writer? But again, uh, there was always you fall back on taking the other side, embracing people who are overt Holocaust deniers. And then when you're called on, you say, well, I don't like that part of them. But there's always this embrace. And, you know, fool me once, shame on uh, shame on me. Fool me, uh, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You know, he's this guy's not being fooled. It's just over and over again. Well, without letting this get too much into into De Corbin individually, I want to ask you about the the flip side of this and, and and explore a different piece of it, which is you have a discussion of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement. And the distinction you draw there is that you don't think that everybody who is supporting it is anti-Semitic, and you note that many Jewish people do um, on on campus, but that the movement itself and some of the things the founders have said, in particular, you know, that uh, they believe that you should have a one-state solution with full right of return, which would effectively dissolve or probably dissolve Israel as a Jewish uh, majority state, and that demanding that of Israel when it is not demanded of a lot of other places, you would see that as anti-Semitic. Um, I, I have two questions about this, guys. I think it gets into very interesting issues, but one of them, uh, I work on the show with um, my colleague, Rajay Karma, and one thing that he, he was thinking about as he read that, and, and this is a question really from him, but that I thought was a good one, is that his grandmother was born in Haifa, and she was forced to leave her home in 1948 when she was 10 years old, and she's never been back. And so if supporting right of return is anti-Semitic, um, if he or others who have been in a similar situation support right of return for Palestinian refugees like her. Does that make him anti-Semitic? Does is is the definition of that truly so wide in scope? Uh, no, I'm not sure. I think it's it it gets very tricky when you talk about pers- per- individuals as opposed to talking about it on a broad scope. Uh, clearly, uh, going back to BDS first, generally, and then I'll come back to this. Um, the reason I really think that there are many, I certainly see this on the campus. There are many kids on the campus, students on the campus, even faculty members who who, who uh, have become supporters of BDS. I mean, many of the supporters of BDS, particularly among the students, can hardly find Israel on a map, uh, which has been shown. Somebody sort of did an a informal study on, on one campus. It's hard to find, you know. It's it's a country where the name has to be is in the in the Mediterranean because it's not big enough to 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 put the name on on the actual landmass. But I think there are a lot of people who support BDS because they think it's a way of getting Israel to change its policies vis a vis the Palestinians, and it's not. Different from, though I don't think uh, the apartheid charge sticks, but it's not different from the way in my generation we demonstrated against uh, South Africa and its policies, not in an effort to destroy South Africa, but certainly to change it, dramatically change its its policy of apartheid and its repression of, of people of color. But I think if you look at the BDS founding documents, if you look at the statements made by the leaders of BDS, and I cite them in the book, 
uh, where they taught, essentially they're looking to bring an end to the state of Israel. And I think they're very glib about, uh, you know, a one-state solution, a one-state of a, a Muslim state in which Jews would be a protected minority. Because I look around, and I think there are 22 or 23 Muslim-dominated Muslim states, and in virtually none of them, with, with a few rare exceptions, um, does a religious, is a religious minority thriving as a religious minority? Um, and so it's a very glib kind of way of saying, oh, well, just, you know, the Jews will be okay as a, as a religious minority. Um, and I think that that's, that's problematic. That's a very um, lighthearted way to deal with the welfare of a very, of six million people, six million Jewish citizens of, of Israel. So that's, that's one aspect that makes it problematic. The other aspect that makes it problematic is that you had, and I, I should know the exact number, but I don't, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna guesstimate. Um, but hundreds of thousands of Jews from Muslim countries who were kicked out, they didn't leave. Many, some left of their own accord. That's true. In '48, but many were kicked out or out of Egypt. You know, uh, in '56, when Nasser gave them, I think it was 48 hours to get out. So there, this is a a double-sided sword, uh, which often is ignored and often is uh, looked at in one way. And I think that the other thing that you I've heard, again, on the campus is that Israel's a theocracy, it's a Jewish state, and, you know, that's an anachronism. Well, but they don't say that about Muslim states. They don't say that about England, which is Church of England, you know. So, again, you get that myopia, that double standard, that that blinder on one eye. I think it's a serious problem of Palestinian Arabs who left or who were chased out, either one or the other, and left behind property and left behind um, uh, homes and uh, houses and land, et cetera. I think that's a problem that has to be dealt with. But I think that uh, certainly the the right uh, the right of return of of uh, and you're dealing now with fourth, fifth, sixth generations. I mean, it it is it is a, a, again an anomalous situation in that in the UN um, when the UN talks about refugees, it's generally the generation of the refugees and not the following three, four, five generations, uh, as is the case with the Palestinians. So you've got a you've got a difficult situation, a tricky situation, but I think unless until and again I don't want to get into the weeds of all of the Middle East issue, there is a sense amongst many people that what the ultimate objective, whether it's a BDS, the founders of BDS, the organizers of BDS, and many other groups, is really the toxification of Israel, of making Israel toxic, of making anything to do with Israel toxic, of making going to Israel toxic. As I described that Stanford student or a student from uh, George Washington who had a op-ed in the New York Times, I would say, about uh, two months ago, I think mid to late November, um, where he, a progressive gay student, very much of the left, um, who was told that he's a racist by other progressives, uh, um, you know, people with whom he would identify and associate, be, associate because he's a Jew and because he is a supporter of Israel. Um, and, and sometimes having to be a supporter of Israel is not even necessary. Just being a Jew, the assumption is you are a supporter of Israel. And unless you, 
um, uh, deny it, unless you disassociate yourself, then you're not seen as a legitimate person on the left. Yeah, and I think that for for people who are longtime fans of the show, uh, I think one way to think about this particular question and and the complexities it brings with it is, if you go back to episodes I've done with Kate Mann on misogyny as a social ecosystem, women face not a thing men feel with Ibram X. Kendi, uh, uh, defining racism as a structure people of color face, not just a thing people feel. Um, I think that that's one of the things that comes into this, that oftentimes, you know, a movement that might, among many in it, have good intentions. I, When I talk to Jewish kids on campus and when I see some of these stories, there's clearly an ecosystem now that is emergent for, for many Jews and not just in America that is anti-Semitic. Whether the people causing it intend for that to be true, it is increasingly true. And I think it's something that, that people should take seriously. The hard part about it for me as somebody who has been in some of these discussions for a long time one of the things that scares me about what's happened in Israel, and I recognize you don't want to get too deep into the weeds in it, so uh, I won't get too deep into it, but is that I've always been a big supporter of a two-state solution, but it has really seemed to me that Israeli politics has turned against that, that Netanyahu in particular has made that more or less impossible to imagine. Um, not alone, right? He is not the only person to blame for the many failures of peace there, but he is certainly somebody who has accelerated in that direction. And that if there is no two-state solution possible, well, it really begins to pit people's support and, and, in fact, in particular, Jews' support for Israel itself as a Jewish state against the support for the ability of people to have self-determination and rights and democracy. And then that becomes quite a bind. Uh, if I, I worry that Israel itself is making a clear distinction between criticism of the policies but support for the Israeli state increasingly impossible by making the answer to that increasingly unlikely. I think I think you're right. I'm a, I'm a strong supporter of a two-state solution. I, I don't know what that two-state solution would exactly look at like. Uh, I don't know how how much either side now wants a two-state solution. But I think without a two-state solution, we're looking at a uh, a, bl- a potentially bleak future. I agree with you. Uh, one of the final chapters of the book, and I think this is a nice place to come to a close, is you issue a warning against a tendency to allow, and particularly for Jews, to allow the fight against anti-Semitism become the sum total of Jewish identity, that we need to be aware not just of what we're up against, but but of what we are. And so I thought a fitting way to end would be to ask you, what does Jewish identity mean to you, separate from the people who want to loathe you for it? What, is, what does it mean to you on its own terms? Well, first of all, it's who I am. You know, it's sort of like asking me, what does my female identity mean? It's who I am. It's what I am. Um, but it's more than just that. It's, first of all, an age-old tradition. My family, you know, has been on, on both sides. We can go trace back for, for centuries. But that doesn't mean that someone who's who's a newer member, a recent a recent sign-up, shouldn't feel as strongly as well. As well. To me... There's a tremendous amount of wisdom in Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition, and and I, uh, you know, you you look at the the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, um, the Old Testament, as some would call it, and you see there a commandment to observe the Shabbat, the Sabbath. Um, but it wasn't just you observe the Sabbath. Everybody in your household, Jew, non-Jew, should observe the Sabbath. The animals should observe the Sabbath. You see a commandment that says, don't plow your field 
with an ox, an ox and a cow, because the ox is so much stronger than the cow that it'll put undue pressure on the cow. And you are in charge of, you, you have to worry about the vulnerable even amongst the animals. It's a tradition that says you get the same reward, long life, for honoring your parents as you do for when you go and take the eggs from a nest, chasing the mother bird away so she shouldn't be there when you're taking the eggs because she has a right, she has emotions too. It's an it's a tradition that said, let your land lie fallow every seven years. It said it before uh, Greta Thunberg and 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 climate change because the land needs to be replenished. It's a tradition that firmly believes in justice. Not just does it say observe justice, it says pursue justice, and it says it twice. Justice, justice shall you pursue. Um, I, I was just at the National Archives uh, two days ago visiting there. And, you know, you look at our founding documents and Jewish Jewish ideas, ideas from the Hebrew scriptures are just infused with it. So I think all those things and so much more that it is this age-old tradition that somehow, look, as a historian, if you were to describe to me the Jewish people and what they have faced without saying Jews, I would say, wait a minute, those people are still around? I was in Bath this summer in, in England, and I went to visit the, the, the excavations of the Bath, done terrifically by the National Trust in England. And as I walked through, I looked at this place and I said, you know, if I had been a Jew living in Bath in the first century when the Romans described, I mean, because it's essentially a spa. There were hot rooms and cold rooms and massage rooms, but also in the middle was a temple because they figured the hot baths, these springs must be a gift of the gods. I would have been severely tempted to say, forget this Jewish stuff, I'm going with the Romans. Or in Christianity to say, wait a minute, forget it, I'm going with the majority, I'm going with the Christians. There is no logical reason from a point of view of history why Jews should still be around. It makes no sense. It makes this as little sense as the the hatred towards them. So I'm it's who I am. It's part of the, my tradition, and it's a tradition which I think has given so much to the world and has more to give. Um, and what breaks my heart, and this is how I end the book, as you know, what breaks my heart is that the recent emphasis on anti-Semitism, and I, I think it's real. I wouldn't have written the book and be studying it and teaching about it and talking about it if I didn't think it was real, has made many Jews uh, make anti-Semitism the raison d'etre, the, the reason, the justification for their being uh, Jewish. Uh, I have a student, I have a student, he graduated um, about a year ago, and he'd been my student for a number of years. And one day he came into my office to talk about his recent paper and his graduation plans, whatever. And I noticed that he was wearing a kippah, a head covering. And I, part of me wants to say, hey, what's up with the, with the yarmulke? What's up with the kippah? But I decided I was inappropriate. So we talked about his paper and we talked about other things. And as he was getting up to leave, he turned to me, he pointed to the kippah, and he said, hey, you notice I'm wearing a kippah? I said, oh, yes, what's that about? And he said, I've been so distressed by some of the anti-Semitic events recently that every time there's an anti-Semitic event, I'm going to wear a kippah. And on one hand, I admired his moxie. I admired his chutzpah, you know, his audacity. On the other hand, my heart broke a little bit because for him, 
his identity was controlled by the oppressor, by the hater. He had ceded to the hater control over when he felt Jewish. When they acted, he felt Jewish. When they didn't, he, he wasn't so concerned about it. Now, um, we aren't in the same studio, but if we were, you could see that I now wear a Magain David, a Jewish star around my neck, something very recent. I only started to do that about three weeks ago um, when I read about a synagogue in the Netherlands which has stopped posting the time of services. If you want to know when services are, you got to know someone. There's sort of a telephone chain. And in fact, there was, a, an, I think, an American student who was in that town, and he said, I didn't even know there was a synagogue here. I would have gone, but I didn't know that. But they're afraid. And I'm not being critical of them at all, but it, it breaks my heart to see Jews beginning to think that they should go underground. Uh, a friend of mine just was vacationing in California with his family and got into conversation with a grandmother whose children go to a very fine modern Orthodox uh, day school, one of the finest in the country. And she said, you know, I've, I'm trying to convince my son and daughter-in-law to take them out because I, I, I want them to be safe. So that Jews are frightened, Jews are concerned, and with good reason. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not saying there isn't good reason. But when that becomes the motivating factor of our identity, We've turned into Jew as object rather than Jewish subject. What is done to Jews and not what Jews do. And, and we do many, many wonderful things, and there are many wonderful things built into our tradition. That doesn't mean there aren't Jews who do obnoxious things. Of course there are, like we're normal people in that sense. But this is a very special tradition, and I hate it. I, 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 I mourn, I, I, I worry um, to see, mourn may be too strong a term, uh, to see it become just the fight against as opposed to what we stand for. And maybe to close with, with two stories, one I have in the book and one a postscript. Uh, I say in the end of the book as I uh, write, you know, the book is written as a series of letters to my student, a Jewish student and a non-Jewish colleague. I tell the story of a, a young friend of mine who was then about four and a half when one day when she, I was walking to the synagogue with her and her mother, and there was a guard in front of the synagogue. We've had a guard in front of our synagogue long before Pittsburgh. And the mother said to her daughter, uh, Shai, thank the officer uh, for protecting us. And Shai looked utterly confused. Because she knows about needing protection. I mean, she and I read every night, and we read Roald Dahl, even though he was an anti-Semite. We read his books. She likes his books. And, you know, peaches that crush people and giants that do bad things and all, and chocolate factories in which kids drown. She knows about bad places. But for her, the synagogue is her happy place. She gets there on a Saturday morning. Her parents go into the sanctuary. She goes off to the playground, runs around like a maniac. Then she goes to children's services, which at her age are games and snacks and, and uh, songs. And then they go into the synagogue where the services are ending and the rabbi gives them lollipops. Then they go to the reception afterwards and, and fill up their plates with cakes and cookies. And, and then after three hours or two hours, she goes home and she's had a great time. And here her mother is saying to her, thank the guard for, for protecting us. Fast forward about three years earlier this year, I was walking into the synagogue with her. She's now seven. And, you know, as we approached the uh, the property, the synagogue, um, and came through the gate, there's now a fence around the synagogue, there was the police officer now wearing a, a flak jacket and have carrying a much bigger weapon. Um, and I was going to you, know, you sometimes say when you 
you hit a young, you, you tap a young person, you say, thank you, say thank you. Uh, I was about to tap her to, to point out that the officer was there and that she should acknowledge and say thank you. But she's a very quick kid, and she saw the officer before I had a chance to do anything. And she looked up and unprompted, this little seven-year-old said, thank you for taking care of us. She's figured out that she needs to be protected. She needs to be taken care of in synagogue. And she looks at the big church across the street. There's no guard there. There's no fence there. The doors are open. And if she looks at every church on the block, and uh, it's the same thing. So she's figured it out. So my hope for her and my hope for my student is that even as they, they engage in this fight against hatred, that it never becomes the dominant factor of their identity. Jews have been around for a long time, and it's not just to be opposed to, to those who, who have this irrational hatred, but it's to do much better things in the world, and I would hope that, that they do that. And the question I always used on the podcast is, what are three books you have read that you'd recommend to the audience? Three books. Okay. Well, since we're talking about anti-Semitism, my, my expertise is the Holocaust. I'm going to stay within that realm. Primo Levi's, If This Is Man, or also published under the title Survival in Auschwitz, I'm sure you've read it, uh, which is an amazing insight of what happens to people uh, under stress, what happens to people when everything that is precious to them is taken away. So that would be one book. Another Holocaust memoir um, written by a, a professor who she happens to be a professor of comparative literature, short at Irvine, short at Princeton, uh, Ruth Kluger, um, which is called Still Alive. It's full of piss and vinegar, and it's feisty, and it's, it's an, again, an amazing um, picture of uh, the Holocaust. And a third book. Oh, now I got to think of a third one. Um, I just read a book uh, against sticking within the the the, the Holocaust, a book pu just published by the United States Holocaust M Memorial Museum called The Unwanted by Michael Dobbs, a former reporter for the Washington Post. And it tells the story of one town and what happened to the Jews in that town. We happen to have a very good um, archival record and how they tried to get out and how they tried to find a place for refuge and how they just couldn't and the way in which their neighbors looked the other way. Some were complicit, some became active Nazis, but most, not everyone, but most just look the other way. And that's what it takes. It takes not speaking up. You know, uh, I'm going to say something, Ezra, which you know well. No genocide ever began with action. Every genocide begins with words. Um, not doesn't mean that, that anybody who speaks the words will ultimately become a murderer, but it always begins with words. The Armenian genocide, uh, Srebrenica, former Yugoslavia, uh, genocide of, of Muslim men and boys, Rwanda, Darfur. It doesn't matter where. It always begins with words. Words count. Deborah Lipstadt, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you to Deborah Lipstadt. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to Topher Ruth for engineering, to Rosa Karma for researching, to Jeffy Geld for producing. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production.